0: frustrated and uh, we finished Romans 15 1 to 13 and as we go through Romans like uh, 15 14 and through 16 basically Paul does a summation of his ministry his plans to visit Spain and I was trying Lord how do I glean out of this something for practical application then there were a lot of salutations and final greetings so um, what I found is as you hit the wall when you're trying to prepare a message it's maybe time to leave it alone so for right now I'm going to leave some of that alone Thank you, honey. Trying to pra- uh, glean practical application, and being that today's Communion Sunday, we're going to look at a. Uh, I want to use here, I just lost my train of thought. A fundamental principle of of Christianity. So today, what I'd like to talk about is the doctrine of propitiation, and it goes right along with what we're doing here with Communion Sunday. But before we start, many of us uh, have heard the stories of the Trojan Horse, right? Right? We all heard the Trojan horse, Iliad Odyssey. Prince Paris had carried off Princess Helen to Troy. And the Greek expeditionary force had actually taken a ship to recover her. But as they were going along, the winds were so strong that the ship could not make any headway. So what Agamemnon, the Greek general, did to the gods and lo and behold, out of Greek mythology, the winds subsided and the Greeks could be on their way to defeat the Trojans. Now, if we look at this story, it's a fictional story taken from Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. And really, it represents the legendary Trojan Wars. But what Agamemnon did was to offer up his daughter as a propitiatory sacrifice. What he did is, he, he what he wanted to do is turn away the wrath of the gods so that the Greeks could continue on their mission. Now, we may see this as repulsive. Like how could he take his only daughter knowing that these Greek gods were no gods at all and offer them, offer her to satisfy the gods? And again, for in our natures, it's probably repulsive that we would think of offering our child up for something like this. But we have to understand that God the Father did the same thing. And we shouldn't be repulsed at the Father we need to be repulsed at the reason he had to do it. Amen? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? So God the Father, the one true God who expressed himself in the scriptures, came out and with the doctrine of propitiation where he would give his only begotten son as a sacrifice to satisfy what man needed, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? And all throughout the scri- well, New Testament, there were five scriptures in the New Testament that actually used the root word propitiate. It's going to be found in Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2, 1 John 4.10, Hebrews 2.17, and Luke 18.13. And as we'll see this morning, if there had not been a propitiatory sacrifice, not one of us could stand here cleansed and forgiven of sins or have any hope of eternal life. Do you hear me? And why? First of all, we have to understand the biblical definition of propitiation. And listen to what it says. The biblical definition of propitiation is this. To cover or to appease the wrath of God so that his justice and holiness will be satisfied so that he can forgive sin. It is to take away God's wrath by the satisfaction, listen to me, of the penalty of the violation for his principles. Man has violated the principles of God, and something had to happen for him to turn away that wrath. Now, as we go on, why was it it necessary to have a propitiatory sacrifice? And that word is going to make me stumble all morning. And the answer is this. It's the wrath of God. The wrath of God had to be appeased. And when we talk about the wrath of God, the word is orge. It's a calm, righteous anger that occurs over time so that he can appease his wrath. It is not thumos, what we experience. Thumos is that outburst of anger. Like if you hit your finger with a hammer, it's like, Wah! or someone cuts you off when you're driving and it's the expletives, or hopefully not, that come out, like, oh, you cut me off, you son of a gun. But that is thumos. But here, orge, listen, orge is a controlled Anger, if you will. It's not the momentary emotion based anger that we feel as human beings. And this term, the wrath of God, has laced throughout the Bible. And in the Old Testament alone, we hear about the wrath of God over 580 times. They speak to it. Listen, because God is the perfect, holy, righteous, and just judge of the universe, he must direct his wrath against sin wherever it is found. And in whomever it is found, do you hear me? He cannot let his love compromise his just condemnation for any any act of sin. He cannot break the very moral laws that he established, or else we would say he's not immutable. Immutable means he doesn't change, because if God can change in any way, shape, or form, then we have no hope of salvation. What if he changes his plans like, okay, it's no longer faith in my son, it's by this? Then we have no hope. God is immutable. He doesn't change, and in his holy nature, he must judge sin as sin. So, can God ignore, sweep under the rug, so to speak, any sin of man? And the answer is no, he cannot. To do so it would be a transgression of his holy nature. So he cannot do it. Listen to this. If after giving a command to Adam in Genesis 2.17, that reads this. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. If God did not judge Adam for that sin, what would we call God? A liar? Unrighteous? Unholy? Unjust? This would be a denial of his perfect, holy nature. He had to judge Adam based on the command, you're not to eat from the tree of the uh, good and evil. So he had to judge. God has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures, the perfect, holy judge of all creation. I know it sounds a little Jonathan Edwards this morning. Sin is in the hands of an angry God, but we got to start somewhere. You got to hear the good news so I can give you the uh, the bad news so I can give you the good news. Amen? I got that reversed. God has to live up to his moral nature. Listen to this. He declared in Proverbs 24, 23 to 25, these also are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judging is not good. Verse 24, whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, Peoples will curse him and nations denounce him. And in Proverbs 17, um, 15, it says this, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord hates them both. So he has to uh, call guilty those who are guilty or he denies his own nature. And we know that all men are sinners. What does it say in Romans 3:23? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God cannot acquit the guilty, and everyone, every man since Adam, is guilty of sin. Read Romans 5. In Adam, all have sinned. Amen? Or all me, I should say. And in Romans 6.23, it declares the wages of sin is death. And that was the promise or word given to Adam in the garden when the Lord said, if you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, both physical and spiritual death. So here, all men are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. So what that said, said was, what, why was there a necessity, or was it necessary to have a propitiatory sacrifice? And the answer is this, because only a propitiatory sacrifice, can the wrath of God be turned away from sinful man. The very meaning of the word propitiation is to turn away the wrath of God. So the only way it could happen, man can't do it for himself, so God had to provide the way. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Because of his holy nature, God must punish every sin of any degree. And therefore, in order to bring complete forgiveness and cleansing for sin, God had to come up with a way, and what does he do? He prepares the propitiatory sacrifice from the creation of the world, before the creation of the world, the Godhead knew man would choose sin. So in their plan, they had the plan that the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, would take on that role and enter human history to be the sacrifice for sin so the wrath of God could be satisfied and all sinners could be reconciled to him. Praise God. Praise God. So, for a moment, let's look at propitiating the wrath of God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prescribed religious rituals that the priest would carry out for forgiveness of sins or covering of sins—they're the prescribed sacrifices that we see in the Mosaic Law. And when a Hebrew would come to the temple or the tabernacle and present that sacrifice, there were four biblical foundations they were standing on. First of all, that they were a sinner and they were under divine condemnation. They had violated one of the moral laws of God. Second is this, that they deserved death for their sin. Third, they needed a substitute to die for their sins. And then fourth, that only the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice would satisfy that and turn away the wrath of God, would be the propitiation, if you will. There are many. Go through Leviticus 1, um, and chapter um, 1, and go through, I'm sorry, go through chapters 1 to 7 and look at it. You have the burnt offering, which is atonement for unintentional sin, the sin offering, which was mandatory for unintentional sin, the guilt offering, also mandatory, also provided restitution. So if you go and read chapters 1 to 7 in Leviticus, look at all the offerings. Blood sacrifice, blood sacrifice, blood sacrifice for unintentional sin or sin. So they had an offering. What it was doing It was a propitiation, taking the innocent animal, shedding its blood, so that God's wrath would be satisfied. Now, if you will, turn with me to Leviticus 16, which is the greatest point of propitiation in the Old Testament, and it's called the Day of Atonement. So Leviticus 16, and I'm going to bounce through there fairly quick, but I want you to see something here, because God's Word is awesome. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, keep that in mind, was the annual Hebrew feast where the high priest would offer a baby goat or a lamb for the sins of the whole nation. But before he did that, the first thing he had to do was offer, make an offering for himself so that his own sins were covered. And we see that in Leviticus 16, 3 to 6, and 11 to 14. Next, what happens is that two baby goats are taken and lots are cast for them. You'll have the sacrificial goat, the one that's going to be sacrificed and whose blood is going to be put on the mercy seat, and the other one's going to be the scapegoat, okay? So you've got the two goats. The high priest would then enter the Holy of Holies behind the curtain, and he would take the blood of the sacrificial goat, and he would put it on what they call the atonement cover. We've come to call it the mercy seat, okay? And he would take the blood and put it, pour it on the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments. This is really good. Listen. The laws that reflected what? The perfect holiness of God, and on whom Israel had repeatedly broken his moral law. So these commandments, if you look at them, and what do the commandments do? What does the law do? It shows us that we're sinners, that we break the moral law. So as the commandments are in the Ark of the Covenant, the priest would come, and it's a way of actually saying that you have violated these laws. And the only thing that's going to propitiate the sin is the blood of the offering on the atonement cover. So in the mercy seat, or the mercy seat was the lid on top of the, the... The ark itself. And what was there were two angels, two cherubim that actually overlooked the mercy seat. These two angels guarded the absolute righteousness of God, his perfect justice. When these angels looked down at the tablets, they not only saw the holiness of God, but they also saw the violation by mankind of the holiness of God. So without any blood poured there, with no satisfaction, The angels saw the holiness of God, and they also saw the sinfulness of men, and that's where they stood. Next, but on the Day of Atonement, the angels witnessed something, the blood of an innocent victim covering the mercy seat. Now, let me explain. This term, mercy seat, in the Greek, it's in the Septuagint, it's called Hilasteru, is kaparat, from which they get Kapor or yom Kap. Hilasterion and Kapoor speak of the mercy seat, and in the New Testament, listen, that's interpreted as propitiation. Propitiation, where blood is going to be put on something so that the wrath of God is satisfied. So we have to understand what the mercy seat is. So when the angels look down and they witness the blood of the innocent victim covering the law tablets, they could now see that the righteousness of God was satisfied. His perfect, holy justice is satisfied. So when the angels look now, they see the covering for sin over humankind so that man would now be accepted. Not only the priest, but the Hebrews also would be accepted in the eyes of God that his wrath had subsided because there was a sacrifice for sin. Until the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the throne of God depicted the place of judgment. But as soon as the blood goes onto the mercy seat, it depicts the place of freedom, the place of forgiveness, the place where man is reconciled to God and God no longer declares him guilty. Because his righteousness and justice were completely satisfied by the bloody death of the innocent victim. It's what he ordained from before the creation of the world. Here, the place where estranged and separated man had now become the place where man, through mediation of the sacrifice, could meet with God and be accepted by God. Praise God. Praise the Lord. After the coming out of the tabernacle, the high priest would come out and he would go over to the scapegoat and what he would do now that the sacrifice had been made, he'd lay his hands on the scapegoat And he would send it out to the wilderness, never to be seen again. And what that is showing is what Psalm 103.12 tells us, that our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. So in this day of atonement, between these two goats, we have the blood that covers the mercy seat, that the blood covers and covers the wrath of God, and we also see sins taken away as far as the east is from the west. Boy, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Sounds really familiar. And with that said then, let's jump into the New Testament. There are five times, as I said before, that the root word propitiate is used in the New Testament and that it's a necessary part of God's plan of salvation. J. L. Packard declared this. Listen to what he said. He's a Bible scholar. He said this, propitiation is central in historical orthodox Christian faith. Human form by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession, the way of salvation, are all to be explained in terms of propitiation. Any explanation from which propitiation is missing will be incomplete and indeed actually misleading by New Testament standards. If we take propitiation out of the New Testament, there's no more gospel. It's a central theme where there is a sacrifice for sin. Amen? So let's look at it might be up there, okay? Um, five places where propitiation is used in the New Testament. So jump to Romans 3, 22 to 26. You know I'm going to get you back to Romans. Did it come up? Oh, look at that. Good job, Michelle. Good job, boys. All right. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over his sins previously committed. For the de- demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So we see here in Romans, you know I'd get you back in Romans, the word propitiation. Now look at Hebrews 2.17 again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Doing what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So why did he come? Why was he made like his brethren to come to be that sacrifice so his blood would be shed? And in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, it says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is for Christians. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for us only, but the sins of the whole world. He came and took it on for the sins of all who will believe by faith. Not just Jew, but Gentile also. Not just slave, but free also. Not just man, but woman also. All who would believe. All who would believe. And in 1 John 4, 8 to 10, it says this. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God has, was manifested in us. God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him eternal life. And this, and this is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us. And what? Sent His Son to be a what? A propitiation for our sins. God the Father sent His Son into the world so that He would be the propitiation for our sins. That He would shed His innocent blood so that the mercy seat would be covered and we would be forgiven. And this is a little strange one, but you have to look at it. That's why I gave you the Greek and Hebrew background. Luke 18, 13, it says this, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes towards heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word mercy is that uh, root word, kipparat, which means mercy seat. He's saying, I need the mercy seat of God. I need a propitiating sacrifice from you, Lord, to cover me so that I can even stand in your presence. He understood, and he went away, Ooh, excuse me, justified, justified, got excited, all right, <laughs> and now let's, what I want you to do is uh, stay in Romans 3:21 to 26. I want to break it down because it is the central passage in the New Testament describing the truth of propitiation. So we read through it, but let's read through it again. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Ready? Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly, As propitiation is his blood through, because in the forbearance of God he passed over those sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he would be both just and justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's essential to understand this passage in light of the book of Romans. If we go from Romans 118 to 320, Paul lays out the doctrine that all men have fallen short of God's glory, but God, in his mercy, is going to give us a righteousness of God or from God that he will impute to mankind so that, that sins could be covered. Amen? Praise the Lord. In Romans 3.21-26, to uh, 26, the way in which holiness, righteousness, and justice of God was satisfied and condemned sinners be declared justified is proclaimed. So in those verses, we see how man can now stand justified before the Father. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. In verse 21, it says, but now. Look at verse 21, if you're in your Bibles. It says, but now signifies a righteousness of or from God. And this inaugurated a new point in human history. See, prior to that, The first revelation of the righteousness of God condemned mankind because that first righteousness that came from God was the book of the law, and the law only condemns. Paul tells us that, that if we look at the law, it condemns us because we see that we're sinners. But this new righteousness of or from God is not going to condemn us. It's going to free us because what's going to happen when Jesus makes that sacrifice, the Lord's going to see us as righteous and justified. The sovereign—it's the sovereign act of God whereby He declares righteous and sinless the believing sinner. Ready? Even while we still sin, we're seen as righteous in His eyes, even though we sin every day. We don't want to do it purposely, but He's covered us to such a point that as we walk with Him, even as we stumble, we're still forgiven. We must come to Him, ask His forgiveness, and He grants it. First John one nine, He grants it. Amen. So he covered it in his, in his righteousness, knowing that we would still continue to have sinful outbursts. Here in the context, this righteousness of or from God refers to God's activity in salvation where he provides righteousness for people who couldn't do it for themselves. We couldn't do it. We could not keep the law, so God did it for us by coming as Jesus, fulfilling the whole law and going the way of the cross. This righteousness of or from God is not based on on good works. Look at verse 3, a A righteousness of or from God apart from the law of God. It's apart from it saying you can't keep it. You can't get there by doing the works of the law. You'll never get there because your sin nature will not allow you to get there. You will stumble at one point, and if you stumble at one point, you've transgressed the whole law. So he's saying it's not by works. So, and listen, works, and you've heard me say this, do not satisfy the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is death. You can do all the good works you want, but it doesn't satisfy the penalty. There had to be a death. There had to be a propitiatory sacrifice. Amen? Whew. Preach it. All right. Now, it says in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, that all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the Lord, no... Flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. As soon as you look at the moral law of God, you realize how far we've fallen from it. And it's not just the letter of the law we talked about it in Sunday school, it's the heart of the law. Thou shalt not commit it upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. You shall not murder. Oh, I didn't kill anybody. Not today, anyway. But it says if you hate your brother, it's as if murder. Lying, half-truth, mistruth, white lie, lies. So we have to look at the heart of the law and we fall short. But thank God that in his mercy and grace, he sent the propitiatory sacrifice. Amen? And if we go on, it says this in verse 21b, The righteousness of or from God has been made known. The root word is phanella. And it's the same word used in the beginning of Romans. It says God has made himself known in the creation what he's saying here is, this righteousness of or from God has been made known. How? Through the word of God. You can go from Genesis all the way to Malachi, and you will see the progressive revelation of the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ coming into the world to die for our sins. And not only is it made known in his word, but Jesus walked amongst us. It made himself known as he made his way to the cross and died on the cross. He came, the full manifestation of the Father in human flesh. Jesus Christ, the exact repre- representation of his Father. So how, do, how is it made known? Through the Word and through Jesus Christ who came and fulfilled the work. Amen? Amen. The righteousness of or from God is not something new. Listen to what it says in verse three twenty one c It says this, to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets. The law are the five books in the New Testament. And also the prophets, the Neveum, all of it, everything in there. Remember Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus? And he started with Moses and the prophets, and he goes through it all and shows all the prophecies that were pointing to him. It's nothing new. It's in the book, and we just have to be out there witnessing it, especially to our Jewish brothers and sisters, that they can see Christ in the Old Testament. Become familiar with the Old Testament. How will you know Jesus if you don't know the Old Testament? Uh, So, Mike, I'm going to stand on what you say on Wednesday nights. There are preachers out that say we no longer have to look at the Old Testament. Yes, we do. If you want to know Christ, and if you want to be a witness to the Jewish people, you've got to know their book. Amen? So it's there. And then it goes on. It says this. The righteousness of or from God is received by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22a. This righteousness of or from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's always been by faith. Always. Read Hebrews 11, to 6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Abraham what? Believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. It's always been by faith. But listen, it's good. I love doing these word studies. Because what he uses here for faith is a noun form, pistis. And the verb form to believe is pisteo. And listen to this. To emphasize the sole condition for receiving the righteousness of or from God. And listen, it's not having faith. It's faith in the one. It's who we believe in. Abraham believed, but who did he believe? He believed God, and it was credited to him righteous. We just don't have faith for faith's sake. We have faith in the living God. See, it doesn't depend on how much, but it's the object of our faith. Faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in God. And we're saved and when we believe into his redemptive work and what he did. It's not faith for faith's sake. It's looking at the object of our faith. That's how we're saved. Amen? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And this righteousness of or from God is needed by all men since all men are sinners. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes? And then it's... uh, Okay, right. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through whom the righteousness of God comes. The sinner is justified. Justified. And that word means it's just as if we've never sinned and just as if we perfectly kept the law. So now that the Lord looks at that as us uh, as justified, he sees us as righteous also, the righteousness of his Son. So we can stand before God still in the residual effects of our sin nature, still slipping throughout the day, stumbling throughout the day, sinning throughout the day, and he still sees us as justified and righteous. Praise God. We are not under condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And this righteousness, look at verse 24a. This righteousness of of or from God is grace. We are justified freely by his grace his unmerited favor to humankind. Did he have to do this? Did Jesus have to come? Did he need us? No. The Godhead was perfectly content, but out of his grace, he freely calls us. Anyone, from any walk of life, no matter where you've been, what you've done, whatever it is, his grace is available, his forgiveness available, and if we bleed by faith into his redemptive work, we're justified no matter where we've come from. And we all have backgrounds. Some, like I said, good sinners. Some aren't. So, you know, the bad sinners. But all come and are equal at the foot of the cross. Amen? And let's go on here. The righteousness of or from God is a gift off because of the redemptive work of Christ. Look what it says in verse 24. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. And listen to this word redemption. It means to purchase... Released by payment of a price. And who paid the price? It's like this. Marty, you were standing on the slave block. And you were condemned to death. And the Son of Man, the Lord of Glory said, Marty, come on down. And he stepped up on the slave block. And he took all we deserved so that we are set free. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So how did God... Make all this occur for the sinner. What actually occurred at the cross? Well, it's described in Romans 3:25 and 26. Listen to what it says. For whom God displayed publicly. Boy, was that cross a public display, yes? As a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness that at the present time, that he would be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says here that because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, not that he was overlooking sin, listen to me, but was being patient and pouring out his grace so that all would come to Repentance all would come to repentance. You have to understand, we talked about this in Sunday school, those back in the Old Testament will look as that were covered on Adam. All the offerings through Leviticus, all those sacrifices, Yom Kippur, were pointing to the Messiah and they were looking by faith. So they did not receive the judgment wrath of God, if you will, for those who believe by faith in the coming Messiah. So you could see Satan, the prosecuting attorney going, hey, I'm accusing you of God of being unjust. Untruthful, unrighteous, and unholy for not punishing those sinners. Meanwhile, it was God who was standing on his grace saying that the time is going to come when those sins will be accounted for. And that time came on the cross of Calvary, where every sin ever committed is committed, will be committed, was atoned for. He, what he did is he put those Old Testament saints' sins on account until the day of the cross, and they were all paid for because those folks in the back believed by faith in the Messiah that was coming. God's response was to send the son become man to be displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood. To appease the wrath of God and the holiness of God, the perfect sinless substitute had to come and shed his blood so that we could be free. And he did this. He moved in history because it was the only thing that could deliver sinful men. So God, as a propitiation in his blood, this word propitiation, again, as we said, was transferred mercy seat. And I want to go back to the Day of Atonement because this is going to blow your mind. All right, listen to this. Let's go back to the Day of Atonement for a moment. All righty. Two cherubim, catch this, faced each other and looked down on it. The Shekinah glory of God rested over the ark On the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled the blood for the sins of the people, yes? When God saw the blood, he could extend his mercy instead of judgment. When God, all right, so he propitiated, appeased the wrath of God when he saw the blood on there. All he's turning aside his wrath. Now, man could have fellowship with God. Listen to this. This is so cool. Listen to John. This is John 20, 12. Mary, looking into the tomb, saw two angels... In white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Isn't it interesting? And the ark, two cherubim, two angels, overlook the holiness of God. The blood is poured out and God's wrath is covered. It's propitiated. Here we see Jesus coming out of the tomb and the two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, saying, It's done. Once for all, sacrifice. The new covenant never have to be repeated again sins are covered once for all in christ jesus when he stepped out of that tomb the angels rejoiced because the holiness of god has been satisfied is that cool i never saw that i'm reading this and i'm going it was, i was reading rc Sproul. i'm like wow this is wonderful you see this stuff in scripture how many times have you read the testaments and you see that praise the lord The sacrificial death of Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice, his holiness, his perfect standards, so that we could stand before him righteous. Amen? And Jesus' death, to be that propitiatory sacrifice, in order to be just and the justifier in our faith, he took the place of sinners. He took the place of judgment. He took the wrath of God so that we would not have to. In verse 26, it says this, He, God the Father, did this to demonstrate his justice. Jesus was displayed publicly. And all God's wrath was poured out on him in front of the whole world. He was telling the whole world, once for all, man's sins are covered in the propitiating death of my son. Praise God. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the Lord. So let me end with this and we'll go to communion. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this church? If you're here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins are not covered. No matter how many good works you do, no matter how many religious rituals you carry out, no matter how many sacraments you may go through, you're still in your sin. The only way for your sins to be covered are by the propitiatory death of Jesus Christ. Because now, when God looks at you, He doesn't want to pour out His wrath because it's been covered in the blood of His Son, the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son of God. Amen? But here's the other thing. For those whose faith is in Christ Jesus, what are you going to do with it? We should be The most thankful, grateful individuals that walk the face of the earth. And not only that, we can thank God for our salvation. We can be so grateful for our salvation, but it's not stagnant. It doesn't end there. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to give ourselves to Christ as living sacrifices? Are we gonna live for him? We saw it in Sunday school today. What kind of worldview do you have? If you have a biblical worldview, understanding what Christ did for us, it should guide every area and facet of our life. Really understood that God died on that cross so that we could be set free, it should guide and direct every part of our life. Every part of our life. No phony baloney, given the soft cell of the gospel or the Joel Osteen type of gospel, live your good life now. It may not be the good life now. Could Ray have possibly gone through this so he could witness to that man, Max? Yes. So in Ray's eyes, it could be, he could be sitting there in misery. Is he in pain? Yes. Is he upset he's there? Yeah. But he used every opportunity he could to witness the staff and a dying patient. We don't know. Our good life is to come. God blesses us now, and he gives us things, and we enjoy it, family, whatever, finances, food, shelter but our best life is yet to come yet to come amen so the question is what are you going to do with an understanding of the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ witness it one yes share because when we look out there and again that's why don't get thumos angry at what's going on in Albany be or gay where you're going to pray for these souls. They're on their way to hell. And if Jesus died for us, he died for them, their sinners, not saved by grace. They need Jesus Christ. Amen? So pray that way, that they'll come to faith. Amen? So be a witness and then live it. That's what he asks of us, to walk in obedience to his principles. Uh, if, if people saw your lifestyle, saw your life, your choices, would they say, Christian or worldly. Only you know that. But in light of what we talked about today, we're going to celebrate communion because we're remembering the price that was paid, but also remembering what we have in that. Eternal life. Peace with God. The peace of God. And the ability to witness that to others. Amen? Worship team, let us pray. Father God, we come this morning, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you in your grace, in your mercy, that right from the Old Testament, Lord, right from the day where Adam and Eve sinned, you gave us a promise that one would come whose heel would be struck, but he would crush the work of the evil one. And as you progressively showed us through the scriptures, the sacrifices, the promises, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all these things of the suffering servant who would come, that would die for our sins, that would take our place, that would go, my God, and shed his blood and put it on the mercy seat so that we could be forgiven, that we could be justified, that we could be clothed in your righteousness. Lord God, we remember at this table this morning all that you accomplished at Calvary. And Lord, we cry out with thankfulness and gratefulness that in your mercy, in your free grace, that you've drawn us unto yourself, that we can have relationship with you because of the finished work of Christ. That curtain was torn in two and we now have access to the throne of grace. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you this morning. And my God, may we be witnesses of this great and glorious gospel. The world is upside down right now and the only answer is you. And we have that. We have the cure for spiritual cancer. Why are we holding on to it, Lord? Help us to share this gospel. And Lord God, help us to live this gospel as a living testimony of the work you have done in our lives in the work you did at the cross and how it's affected us in our daily life. Lord, we thank you this morning. Let us be an exuberant and joyful people rejoicing in what we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this moment make your way up to get the elements